it's a bit of a challenging line to walk. You have to imagine, I think there were six or seven Sharahuses on the market in a two-week period at auction. So that's quite a lot for just one artist and offers collectors plenty of choice. It's this very kind of singular body of work within what she does, basically. And so when a work is exceptional and it has, to your point, the opportunity to really shine because there's nothing around it competing, it's kind of the perfect mixture that, that gets those big prices. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Art's look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Julian Ehrlich is the head of Christie's mid-season post-war present sale. In today's market, where artists are regularly bid high above their estimates, the post-war present sale is a place for breakout sales. This season, that happened spectacularly for the work of Lynn Drexler but she's hardly the only artist to shine at Christie's. In this podcast, Julian talks about putting together his first sale and how he reads the market. I hope you'll enjoy it. Julian Ehrlich, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. So you just had your first sale in the post-war to present uh, category. It's the uh, March mid-season sale, which used to take place around the Armory Show Fair. Uh, that fair has now moved to uh, September, but the, the sales have continued, uh, I presume because, you know, the market likes them, and there's demand from both buyers and sellers to have a, a March sale in uh, New York. Could you give us a little sort of overview of uh, uh, the importance of these sales and the strategy behind them? Sure. Um, I would say more and more, it's become clear that there's a time at basically all points of the year to sell contemporary art, whether that's in New York or London or Hong Kong, there's a market for it. Um, and so despite as you've mentioned, the Armory Show moving, uh, there's just a great opportunity to kind of keep collectors engaged. We had the London sales a week before um, and then kind of moved them back to New York for, for the post-order present sale. And the sales very much formatted true to its name around a kind of canonical post-war context. So really looking at a blue chip that's been in the market for a long time. And then also looking at the emerging side. So whether that's artists who are really just blooming into their mature careers or artists who are a bit more historical but have been a bit less examined. So it, it kind of takes emerging from just kind of what's being made now and, and makes that a more expansive term to kind of also look at a historical context. Well, that was encapsulated in two things. I mean, the you cleverly, because it was both International Women's Month or Day, I can't remember, but you, you know, the first run of lots was all by women uh, artists, many, if not all of them, uh, historical uh, artists, if I remember correctly. Um, and that uh, uh, 10 or so lots did very well. Uh, one of the m 
more exceptional lots was the um, Lynn Drexler painting from the early 60s that sold, uh, it was being deaccessioned from a museum in Maine, but it sold for uh, a, more than a million dollars, a million three, I can't mem- remember. Just uh, over a million all in. A great way to uh, announce uh, an important uh, historical artist who maybe not that many people uh, knew or understood. Did, did you go into that sale, have those kinds of expectations for, for it? You put that lot early on, so I th- think you had expectations, but could you explain a little what you think happened there or what maybe you know from the bitter or what you can tell us, I maybe should say. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. I'm I'm thinking from the context of putting that lot order together, I was really just looking at everything we had sourced for the auction. It's really a team effort. And the I felt, you know, that I think you pointed out rightly that it was International Women's Day, very close to this date of the sale. But um, it just felt looking at the artwork we had brought into the auction that some of the most exciting works, which I thought had the greatest upside, happened to be by women artists. So that's kind of how that lot order came together. And it it was a bit of a mix between artists who are very much working today and and have developing careers. We opened the sale with Hilary Pesches. Um, And then it went into Lynn Drexler. So I tried to create connections between super contemporary conversation, and then a more kind of art historical perspective. In regard to the Lynn Drexler painting, which did so fabulously, as you pointed out, against an estimate of 40 to 60, um, even from a kind of visual aesthetic standpoint, there was something that felt really striking about it. It it felt unique in terms of its composition, um, the kind of rhythm of the brushstrokes, the use of metallic paint, the kind of Matisian approach to color, also something quite Hoffman about it, and the artist had studied with Hans Hoffman, um, all felt like a really novel combination that I hadn't quite seen before. There were echoes of maybe Alma Thomas, but to my knowledge, they weren't hyper aware of each other or in conversation. So for all those reasons, it felt like a really, really striking and exciting thing just from a kind of visual aesthetic standpoint. I think also taking cues from the market, last year, a smaller example had come up um, at Christie's, much, much smaller, I think closer to like eight by 12 inches, something like that. And against an estimate of 10 to 15, it made over 60 or $70,000. And you had another work uh, of similar sort of size, maybe not the exact size, that also did quite quite well, that was sold in either the- Exactly. Yeah, after. it came right after the larger example. Um, and so I had known that there was upside potential in this work. I couldn't have predicted that it would have gone as far as it did. Um, but I think that's kind of the cool thing about this mid-season context. It allows for a certain level of exploration and discovery. I won't say that I discovered Lynn Drexler. There have been collectors and galleries in this market for as long as she has been creating work. Um, But to be able to give it the stage of an auction at Christie's, I think is just part of that puzzle that helped push it to that level. Um, And it was really thrilling and gratifying to see the response from bidders. I mean, we, it was probably one of our more requested lots in the sale and it ended up hammering for many multiples of the estimate to your point uh 23.75 i believe yeah uh, exactly <laughs> not 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 to put too fine a point on uh, not on that it. you're counting exactly uh 
it's interesting. So y- what you're saying is that there was already evident demand, uh, and obviously coming out of a, uh, a museum, even a small museum near where she lived in Maine, means there's a quite limited supply, I'm assuming. Either people just don't know where the works are, or there's not a lot you can access. Well, it's kind of an interesting conversation to have, especially with these artists who are rediscovered in quotes, because let's talk about kind of the art system as a whole or the art market as a whole. And especially in the realm of post-war and contemporary auctions, there are a kind of group of artists that are sold in those auctions and new artists are added every year. Um, and this, <clears throat> excuse me. And especially from the perspective of looking at kind of discovering again, in quotes, these more historical artists um, because these collectors who've been buying the works haven't necessarily been integrated as much into um, this kind of blue chip art system. The question of supply is a slightly different one than, let's say, with Rothko, where it's very well accounted where those works are. With artists like Lynn Drexler, but looking back a few years, I remember the first really exceptional result for Sam Gilliam. Um, those weren't necessarily artworks that auction house specialists were n- tracking. And now we certainly do. Um, but that all changes when there are these breakout prices. So I think that in terms of having a debut, this was a very kind of perfect confluence of quality from the perspective of the specific artwork. It just was a really exceptional work, um, but also just the right time and place for a very individual and singular woman artist who kind of was, for lack of a better term, marching to the beat of her own drum um, to debut at auction and, and really fly. Uh- I think you made a really interesting point earlier that I just want to reiterate, which is that work really was hard to, if you just knew nothing, there was no name on it and all, it would be very hard for most people, even people with a a pretty good knowledge of contemporary art, I think, to place it in time. It doesn't look so obviously of a specific era. When you know more about it, it doesn't look out of place uh, uh, for what it was. But I don't think on the face of it, as you said, it could have been painted in the last, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years as easily as, uh, whatever, 50, 60 years ago. Completely. And I, I think one thing that I really loved about the work was that there was this use of metallic paint. We installed in the gallery at Christie's with an 80s Frankenthaler, which had that metallic paint. Right, but th- this Lynn Drexler was about twenty years older than that work. And then on the other side of the wall were two Shara Hughes paintings, um, both of which just had this kind of multiplicity of materials used and all these different uh, contradicting perspectives and kind of clashing narratives within them. And in a funny way, I felt the Lynn Drexler mirrored some of those elements in both the Shara Hughes and the Helen Frankenthaler. It felt like this synthesis of both in a way that I thought was a pretty unique opportunity to have them all together in the same room. You did well with a couple of Frankenthalers and you did well. I mean, it, it, what's interesting about it is there were, uh, there was Elaine de Kooning that did well, maybe yeah, two. Yeah, those two. did super well. I mean, it, it wasn't, uh, there was a run of those artists with fine work, but there was clearly demand for them. And I don't think work that necessarily stood out as much as the Drexler did, both for its size and its somewhat novel uh, appearance. Uh, and and I'd add to that list, you had two works, the same sort of thing, a small one and a uh, you know a medium sized one, but but two works by Lee Montague that both did quite well. Uh, and and I, that was great. And I, I would make the distinction that that's less of a new story than um, 
Lynn Drexler, but that is a story which continues to be told, right? One, she's a living artist. Two, we've set the record at Christie's on the ultra high end for the sculpture uh, just last November with this really exceptional, masterful wall sculpture. Um, and so having that work on paper was, was a really exciting thing. Um, again, this even feels farther removed from having any sort of level of discovery for the artist. Um, but it, in some sense, it was this new opportunity to, to reintroduce them. Well, I guess well, you, you again, you raised another fascinating point, and this may go more towards that timing issue. You know, what's great about these sales is there's nothing competing with them. Uh, right. You know, even the ones in London were a, a, a week earlier. Here's a chance for people to come to town and just look at this, you know, mix of work. And there, especially in the context of, you know, a few months earlier, a big uh, sale, a work on paper can get the attention that it might right. not in a day sale, even though many more people might go through there, there's just still the, you know, hubbub of these uh, uh, events. And it, it offers an opportunity for things to be um, shown and focused on that uh, complement totally. uh, the, the, the major sales, as it were. Totally. It's a bit of a challenging line to walk. Because you are timed with London, you have to imagine, I think there were six or seven Char Hughes on the market in a two-week period at auction. So that's quite a lot. Uh, for just one artist and offers collectors plenty of choice. In the context of the Bonticue, as an object, that was a pretty rare thing. MoMA has a very similar work. They kind of predate the sculpture. They're made with a blowtorch and she's burning into the paper and then scraping away at the razor. It's this very kind of singular body of work within what she does, basically. And so when a work is exceptional and it has, to your point, the opportunity to really shine because there's nothing around it competing... It's kind of the perfect mixture that that gets those big prices. And to my knowledge, that's one of the more expensive works on paper by the artist ever sold in the highest price of auction. It, it also, you know, you, you bring up Shara Hughes. Uh, there, there's now a group of artists who are sold everywhere. Um, uh, Javier Calleja, uh, uh, Shara Hughes. There's um, uh, you mentioned Hillary Petchis er, er, earlier. That you, know, you can easily go from Hong Kong to London to New York right. and see those works in the sales. There might be some inflection points here and there. The Yukoviches seem to sell mostly in L London. That may be just bore. There's fewer of them to to sell in all. There's now a whole host of. Um, uh, I believe in your sale, you had an Ishak I I Ismail. Right. Um, there's a couple of other, uh, I'm going to destroy this name, but o o o Oluwole Omofemi. Did I even get close? Pretty close. Omofemi, I think. Omofemi, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, talk to me a little bit about that. That uh, it, when you are selling those, are you dealing with sort of this global group of collectors? Is it more oriented towards North American uh, people when you're selling in New York? Or is it just, again, that same thing, like we can't sell, can't sell 12 of these in one sale. So that we've a market has emerged that is equally in Hong Kong as it is in New York or London. I would say the market is incredibly global. Um, there's bidding participation basically from collectors on every continent. I would say for New York sale, and especially mine, it's weighted towards North America, Europe, and Asia, um, probably in that order. Um, looking at artists like Shara Hughes and Hilary Peshis, there's incredible interest and buying power from Asian collectors that I think help drive some of these exceptional results. And that's well known. I think what's really interesting is the emergence of some of these African contemporary artists 
into the auction context because again they've all been working um, for some years um, and have their own markets but the way these markets have now been integrated into a post-war and contemporary art context that is um, putting them in conversation with artists all over the world I think is a really interesting thing and something that feels newer to me at least in my time in the market. Um, and it, it seems to have a big kind of nexus in London. Those auctions often feature really contemporary African artists, um, but it's coming into New York as well. And I think every season we're seeing greater and greater enthusiasm for them. And and it's also in Hong Kong. I think that's one of the, you mentioned yeah. earlier that they're part of it, but I mean, it just, that that sellers have that option that, that there is the demand from uh, uh, all over and it seems to create um, a level of interest interest. Uh, it, it, and maybe that's a good place to start talking about what is it about that this end of the market that has made it so dynamic, right? They're just the, the, the lower value lots. And maybe that's just the excitement of bidding up on things uh, right. that are uh, uh, relatively low, low value. But that seems to be where a lot of the the focus of collectors is right now, and and maybe it's just a cycle. Like we we do go through these, we go through periods where we rediscover uh, people, we go through periods where it's all about uh, new artists. And I mean, what's different about now is it seems to be happening at all levels of the market. You know, you see these big collections selling quite well, and then you see people focusing uh, uh, on this end. Um, let's forget the, the the top of the market. Uh, uh, on this end, it, what's driving it? Is it, are there just many more buyers? Is it, I, I, I hesitate to use the term speculators because it's always treated like a, a swear word, where, whereas <laughs> value funny. is created by people willing to, to take the, the, the risk on, on it. But it certainly seems like there, there's, there's something going on and I'd be curious to hear your take. Well, I think there are a few forces at play, let's say, and this is not an exclusive list, but I think generally collectors who are entering the market want to be in the conversation with the artists of their time. So a way to participate in that conversation is to buy through primary, but it's also participating in the secondary market and auction. I would also say it's kind of a supply question uh, from a historical perspective, and it, it leads back to why the Bondecue and the Drexler did so well, but also the Shara Hughes, um, because they haven't, you know, the, the the masterpieces by those artists are still being sold today, and they're not necessarily priced in the same echelon as some of our more commonly sold artists, um, whether they're post-war or contemporary. It's, I think, less daunting, and uh, there's honestly, or frankly, just a, a lower entry price to buy an A plus Omofemi than there is to buy um, an A plus. I mean, I could list a, a hundred artists, figurative yeah. painters, um, yeah. and so that's this really attractive way to enter into the market and and to have kind of a high quality collection. Um, I think you can't discount speculation. That, of course, is part of what happens in any market. Um, and then. Kind of finally, I think that the market in a way privileges novelty. I think people want to have and participate in new stories. And I think that's what invigorates the auction market. It's a sense that you are part of the next chapter. Um, but I feel like these stories, uh, you know, they, they, they happen periodically in the uh, art market. But what's different now is the persistence of them. 
usually there's either a limited supply of what can be flipped or there is a, a enough uh, uh, coordination on the dealer side to sort of uh, put a clamp uh, uh, on it. But, you know, uh, Emily Mae Smith, we we're going on several seasons now where the works um, uh, keep uh, performing, almost to the point where sometimes you're looking at these estimates and thinking, okay, this this is, is an advertisement to get people to bid. That's great. But it's certainly not an estimate of the value because most people would say, oh, that's going to go for much more than um, uh, the low estimate. Uh, so we're in a, a, a position where we're kind of waiting to um, see how, w- whether these will run their course and they just keep going. I think ultimately, isn't that a positive thing that they keep going? I think that looking, keeping an eye towards sustainability for artist markets is something everybody thinks about. And it's a partnership between secondary and primary, which really keeps an artist market healthy. In the case of Emily Mae Smith, we continue to see very exceptional prices, to your point. But ultimately, it could continue to go you know, into perpetuity. It's hard to say how public consensus changes around an artist and why exactly that happens. Um, and I think we're all very aware of a generation of artists working from 2013 to 2016, making abstract work that have subsequently seen their markets really decrease, at least in the secondary context. Um, but I don't know if that necessarily foreshadows any decrease for artists whose markets are incredibly lively today. Yeah, I, I, I guess what I was trying to say is uh, it seems different from that period. Agreed. Uh, I mean, wh- when there are these these cycles, the last one of like, hey, we're sort of, we want to focus on the new was that period around, you know, uh, 2014. And it came after a big run up in prices. It, it, it usually looks like people get priced out of the top of the market. And so they start saying, hey, what, what's new and focus on that for two, three years. And then there's a, a renewed interest either because things come on the market or, um, you know, uh, taste change and, and all. But now it seems like there is a different dynamic going on. As I said earlier, it seems to be the whole market all over the place is is active and seems to have depth to it. And, you know, again, maybe that's a part of the macroeconomic environment that we we, we live in. Maybe it's a secular change. Art has become much more important and um, a a, a lingua franca around the world for people to feel connected uh, and share in something. I mean, one of the great things uh, is watching people have this common knowledge of African diaspora painters right. all over uh, uh, the world. Uh, that that that's a good thing. So you know, uh, uh, I, th- I I'm more curious the positive side of this. I guess is what I'm sa- saying. Totally, and I, I think I think we can't count out just like the ways in which our media of exchange have developed. I think platforms like Instagram are huge in terms of how the art market has changed. And I think the fluency and kind of omnipresence of very iconic artworks, um, the fluency people have with those works, you know, I was walking down the street yesterday and saw two people not who I don't think were together, one wearing a Warhol jacket, one wearing a Basquiat jacket. And I think the way that these artists have become brand names, but also just the immediacy and availability of their artworks um, on platforms like Instagram have completely changed people's level of comfort with art. And so 
you know, I think one thing I saw from my sale was that there were an incredible amount of people who are new to Christie's who participated. And so it wasn't really just looking at this closed book of known collectors who who we were targeting for, for certain artworks in the sale. It really was felt like an invitation to a larger group that we actually weren't quite in contact with, um, who ultimately drove the results for a lot of lots. Is that people sort of coming in over the transom, just sort of walking in the door and and uh, chatting you up or, or calling up and wanting to bid? Or is it people being brought in by, uh, new clients being brought in by business getters uh, and, and specialists? It's a total mix. I think the pandemic has changed a few things. And one thing that feels huge is just the role of online, that artwork can be accessible through your computer, that you can bid online um, in live auctions to very high sums means that the kind of traditional barriers that might have stopped anyone from coming to an auction house have been lowered somewhat and and you, you can really have a high level of access basically without leaving your house and that's changed a lot and i would say that there's a heavy degree of overlap between people participating online and also being quite new to us so someday someone will have to do the sociological study of why these auctions, which have always been available on the web, who the work has always been available, and and anyone can walk in the door during the um, exhibitions and go see uh, uh, the work, with that the pandemic created a huge demand for the uh, auctions online. I guess on the assumption that somehow it, if it wasn't taking place in an exclusive room, it was more accessible, even though the same cameras were uh, on, the same bidding technology was being used. But it also still feels like people are still afraid to walk into um, the auction houses, <laughs> that the, 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 forbidding nature of those um, doormen and Rockefeller Center and all. all. Well, I hope not. But I I think I was gratified to see that in this sale in March, it was the first time in a while I saw a really full room um, outside of an evening sale. So that that was cool. It felt like, and there were bidders in the room, it it felt like there was a kind of active um, pool of people that that wanted to at least see what was happening. And so hopefully that's the first step and and really getting people back in, especially outside of the blockbuster side of the the auction market, um, more on the day sale side. But I think questions of accessibility and kind of barriers to entry are super valid and and are worth asking. I was going to say, it's the other way around. The barrier to entry is in the assumption of the people that they couldn't they wouldn't be allowed in or that right. this is exclusive i mean it, it it doesn't take much to walk in that door and discover that it, it isn't you it, in the old days um gill the famous doorman at uh, christie's was one of the friendliest people uh, in the world totally and ultimately these auction houses christie's is, it's a free museum that is constantly rotating um that's a pretty special thing you just can walk right in so it's good for people to know that. So uh, before I lose you, I have some burning curiosity about one other artist, famous in the 80s, now forgotten to time, who did quite well in, in your, your sale. And of course, I'm speaking of Julian Schnabel, whose uh, uh, work uh, sold, I think it was like his eighth highest auction pr- uh, price uh, and all. Uh, tell me more about that. Is that just sort of, 
a one-off? Did someone sort of purposefully, and this is not an isolated incident, by the way, this is a fairly high level, but there have been a number of his works that have come up over the last few years and have done quite uh, uh, well. And I've noticed there's more of a taste. You'll see plate paintings. And I mean, I know he's done more of them recently, but you'll see old plate paintings more now than you, you necessarily used to. Uh, and sure. Give me, give me a little color on the schnabel market. Well, I would object uh, respectfully to you saying he's forgotten by time. I think Julian Schnabel has remained relevant and an important artist to plenty of people, collectors, and institutions. In my defense, hold on, in my defense, I was being arch because he is quite famous as an individual. Right. But I, I do wonder how many people who know him, uh, uh, who he is, quite know the art uh, and all. You know? Right, yeah, that, that's a funny distinction. And I think I feel quite defensive because we share a name. But uh, there, Well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I'm, I'm a fan of the work. And I, I think we think about auction and markets in general a lot with, within cycles, right? And so I think that a perception of an artist or a group of artists uh, can increase in prestige and decrease over time, but it, it's not exactly a, a linear ascent or descent. It can often be quite parabolic um, and wavering up and down. And so when we talk about Julian Schnabel, I think it's important to talk about David Sally as well, to look at other artists from the 80s um, who are having these market resurgences, Clemente, um, that I think might have been harder to predict even five years ago. I will say that the example by Julian Schnabel that did very well in the sale was a velvet painting. And I think those, along with the plates, have just consistently had a market. I think it's this very kind of, again, unique and singular idiom to paint on velvet in that way that feels pretty iconic of the artist's practice, especially looking at just the span of, you know, the span of the auctions, the artworks that did the best felt completely unique to that artist. The Bontecue made of soot, the Drexler, which felt so visually distinct, circling back to Schnabel, who really was kind of pushing the expressionistic potential of painting into this new direction in what he was doing. And I think that helps explain that exceptional result. I mean, there were there were plenty of people interested in it, and, and, it, and it did well because of that. And, it, it, you know, they're not necessarily those works of that era accessible outside of these big auctions. No, and I think that that through line, that connection to the 80s, uh, not just Basquiat's enormous fame and importance right. now, now, but I think as you pointed out, out uh, we're seeing a lot more of David Sally uh, the, these days, that there's a the sense of, you know, like with many things, th that moment's time for either nostalgia or rediscovery or just interest has uh, uh, come again. Uh, and and uh, I guess uh, uh, if I'm being snotty about it, it's only because I lived through it the first time and uh, want to pretend it's not quite so worthy of uh, uh, the memories. That's funny. Yeah, I think more and more we're just, we're seeing a renewed interest in 80s New York. And that's part of the halo of artists like Basquiat and Herring. But it's, it's, shining on just a whole range of artists that, again, I never really want to say artists are overlooked because these are all very famous, celebrated artists, but I think they've not achieved as high public prices 
And we're starting to see that happen more and more. And it's not exclusive to the 80s. It's just this, again, cycle of reevaluation that the market is constantly going through. No, and you, I think you also, again, the, uh, put your finger on something else. Uh, Annie Flanders, who founded Details Magazine, which was the sort of Bible of right. da- that downtown scene, which Schnabel, more than anyone else, was uh, such a larger-than-life uh, figure. She just died. And so I, 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 there is a kind of sense of people from that moment passing and living memory of it beginning to, to fade, which usually generates more um, curiosity and, if not nostalgia, at least fascination uh, with the period. And I think that in many ways, some of those uh, artists their familiarity worked against them. They they just they always seemed present, even though they they we hadn't seen them for very long. I mean, Clemente is a good example of that. He was totally. just so present. You you feel like you've just seen um, uh, his work, and yet there it really hasn't been. Uh, it's also the importance of hindsight and giving yourself space from kind of the perception of an artist at the time at which they were getting the most attention, and really just looking at the work. And that that's kind of why I think the sales cool opportunity for a newer collector because you're given this total range of artists some of which are still considered uh you know a plus and and exactly what the market is looking for but then also some stories which you know might have been more highly featured 30 years ago or artists who are just starting to get attention and so you have that mixture and you're actually kind of able to make your own determinations that are not so like overly influenced by a a market narrative you can you know make choices that oh i'm super interested in this kind of under-examined 60s woman abstract artist or i'm kind of interested in this quieter work by an 80s artist who's you know had their peak of fame not thinking about schnabel specifically but just platonically you know 30 years 40 years ago and you know is in great collections but just hasn't been performing well this actually is a great opportunity to get something of substantial quality that isn't priced in a way that's inaccessible well that i mean this is a whole subject for another conversation but one of the things the art market lacks is the the acceptance and understanding that these thing these times when things are not, uh, uh, not heavily priced are great opportunities and that down markets either individual markets for artists or broader down markets are as necessary and healthy to the long term as up markets and and we've lived through such a very long in the last few years up market uh, i think we're 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 beginning to forget uh, uh that so it is uh, uh totally interesting to see these kinds of artists you know who, who just haven't been traded very often. So there's the opportunity to sort of recalibrate them uh, and for people to feel like there's an, both an opportunity and also upside uh, because of the you know length that they've held them. And, uh, Completely. Right. And I, I mean, I think to your point about the up market, I think it's been incredibly positive for so many reasons. One, that I feel that this current run in contemporary art has really opened it up wide to a range of perspectives, at least in the market context, and definitely outside of it. Um, To women artists, artists of color, thinking Black artists specifically, it's just been this really um, kind of expansive and I think positive moment where plenty of benchmark prices have been set over the past five, six, seven years, um, and now especially 
that have been really uh, positively influential to these these artists' careers or legacies. Um, and so I think that's all important. And I think the artists who are getting plenty of upside right now, whose artworks are selling super well, I think that's an amazing thing. I think to your point, on the flip side, plenty of the artists who are a bit overlooked, um, it doesn't mean it's going to be that way forever. And I, I, I think, you know, there's evidence of that. So there, there's opportunities on both ends, let's say. Very well stated and also diplomatically st- stated. Julian, one, thank you. First, for the trip down memory lane through the uh, 80s, but second, for really giving us a, a deeper insight to how your market is uh, working. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Really nice to speak with you. Thank you for joining us at the Intelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Intelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it. <laughs>